Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan. Uh, We're currently in a series called Crux, um, and today I'm going to be talking to us about faith and kind of some of those words that hover around the idea of faith, faith, belief, trust. We're going to be examining uh, a few of those, but I kind of, as I was preparing these past couple of weeks, this is what occurred to me that was so powerful about us talking about faith today, um, that there's more to our Christian faith than a good retirement plan. You can, you know, I thought that was clever personally. Um, what, what happens after you believe but before you die? And I think, unfortunately, uh, many of us perhaps grew up in a church culture where you, you come forward and you say a prayer, and then you basically just kind of twiddle your thumbs until the apocalypse. Like, you're just waiting for something to happen, and, and there's all of this idea of what's going to happen way down the road in the future to the earth, to you, and you're going to become an angel, and all of a sudden you're really good at the harp, and that's kind of the thing. Um, but the powerful recognition with Scripture is that the, the early Christians, the very first Christians in their writings, Paul and these others, they didn't talk a whole lot about the afterlife. And it's not that they didn't believe in one. They believed in heaven. They believed in hell. But they largely left that up to God, that whatever it is, that's in God's hands. And it's too big and too wonderful for us to really comprehend. And conversely, they talked a whole lot about how we live life here and now. That even for many of us, when we read the word heaven, we think the afterlife, the place that we go and we die. But for the early Christians, Heaven itself meant the new reality of God that we live in right now, that we get to experience right here. And I think that that dramatically shifts our understanding of what we're talking about with faith. Uh, Another thing that happened this week is that we lost a titan of the faith. His name was Eugene Peterson. How many of you are familiar um, with Eugene Peterson? So he passed on Monday at 85. Um, He was an amazing man. He Uh, He was a pastor in a church in Maryland for over 30 years that he had founded. He stayed in the same place. Uh, Most of you would know his work from his translation of Scripture called The Message. Is anybody familiar with that? Really phenomenal uh, interpretation of Scripture. Basically, in the 1980s, uh, as a gift to a friend, he translated one, her favorite psalm. Uh, He was very good at, gifted at language. And so he translated into contemporary language. And the project just started to build from there. And he did all the Psalms. And he started to do the Old Testament, the New Testament. And then the early 2000s, they released the message. And it's transformed lives all over the world, uh, in the English-speaking world, because he put so beautifully some of the more obscure passages in Scripture and really made them relatable. But not only that, he was considered a pastor's pastor. He wrote all of these books about the art of being a pastor that have been invaluable to me and countless others in my profession. And so I was just kind of processing and celebrating his life uh, this year as I was thinking about faith, and I thought it would just be a a really great homage for us to look at um, a quote of his that I think so beautifully frames what I want us to explore uh, in faith tonight. And so this this is a quote from Eugene Peterson. He says, the way of Jesus cannot be imposed or mapped. Now, how many of you are the kind of personality where you would just love if Jesus did, did it for you. He just imposed it, right? Like he just made it all happen, right? 
Or many of us, maybe we really feel like we want it mapped. We come to him and we say, okay, Jesus, I need the length and the width and the height and the depth. Like, give me the descriptors, the expectations. What's it going to look like? Like, map it all out for me, and then I'll choose in. Then I'll say yes. And this is kind of the, the mentality that Eugene's challenging with us. He says, the way of Jesus cannot be imposed or mapped. It requires an active participation in following Jesus as he leads us through sometimes strange and unfamiliar territory in circumstances that become clear only in the hesitations and the questionings, in the pauses and reflections where we engage in prayerful conversation with one another and with him. I think in this quote, he so beautifully uh, draws out the real character of what the Christian faith is like. And, and, you know, it was only a couple of years ago for me that I had this reorientation in understanding what faith really was as I was trying to define it for myself. It's another one of those words that we use all the time, but when it comes down to actually defining what we're talking about, maybe we feel like we're at a loss. And so for the past couple of years, this is the, the definition that I've come to that I found most helpful that faith is choosing to participate in God's story, especially when we don't have all the facts. Now, whenever I come across the word faith in Scripture, I just think participation. Whenever we sing about faith, that's what I think about, participation. And I think for a lot of us, the idea of faith has been sold short, that it's something about uh, our understanding, our comprehension, or our mastery of uh, of a way of living our lives. And so we always feel like we're inadequate or we're less because we don't have all the answers and we don't always know what's going on. But I think in contrast, when we really start to look at faith through the journey of the Christians that have come before us and even before that in God's people in Israel, we see a dramatically different picture of faith being painted for us. But before I talk about what faith looks like for you and I even today, I think it's really important that we start by our conversation with faith by understanding God's faithfulness to us is the first move that he makes. And that as God models faithfulness to you and to me in our stories, he invites us to respond to that. And so God's faithfulness begins with his promise to be with us no matter what. And I've said many times before, I think this is the promise upon which we hang all the other promises. Everything that we receive from Scripture, everything that God has spoken to us directly or through our community, through prayer, whatever it might be, all of the other promises that God has spoken over you hinge upon this promise that He's going to be with you no matter what. And that stands in a stark contrast to some of the other examples of God's that we've looked like we've looked at in the past, even kind of going back to that first uh, message when we're talking about the Trinitarian God and how this God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, chooses to be with us constantly throughout the story. And it's imperative that we understand that. So what I want us to do is we're going to just step into a brief uh, meditation um, where we're going to just invite the Lord to reveal to us the reality of Him being with us and what that looks like, not just as an idea that we've read in a book, but something that to some degree each of you have experienced. So I'm going to invite you to, to close your eyes and you can just kind of get yourself in a position of receptivity. And I'm going to read uh, a couple passages from Scripture where this, uh, this Trinitarian God promises uh, to be with us and for us. 
So first, God the Father, from Deuteronomy 31. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus, the Son, from Matthew 28. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And the Holy Spirit, from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Finally, Paul sums it up as this beautiful image of God who is three in one, being with us and for us in Romans. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Lord, we thank you that time and again through scripture, through history, through personal experience, you have revealed how faithful you are to us. God, it's impossible for us to really understand faith until we see that you have made the first move towards us so we know what it is that you're inviting us to. Teach us to inhabit that promise above all others that we might see day by day the evidence of your faithfulness in our lives and our story. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. So God is faithful to us first, that God models what faithfulness really looks like to us, and he shows himself in that faithfulness to be somebody who is trustworthy because it's his eternal presence to us that's the promise upon which all the others hang. And I think this is really important because, number one, that there's this idea that God is with us in his presence. And number two, that God is for us because some of us are comfortable with the idea that maybe God is with us alongside of us, but that makes us nervous because we don't really believe that God is for us. We feel like maybe God is always watching us, just waiting for us to fail, waiting for us to mess up. And the idea of God being with us is actually a little bit oppressive. And I've always found it most helpful when we're talking about our relationship with God to put it in terms of the relationships that we have with other people. Because I think what we find so often is that we're motivated by this fear of being alone. This is what we talked about with human nature. And that guides our interactions with other people. 
I mean, if we're honest, a lot of times that, those are the questions we're asking of the people in relationship with, right? When we feel insecure in our relationships, we're always kind of challenging, like, are you, are you just going to dip out on me? Like, are you really here? What do I need to do to get you to stick around? And we kind of play those roles and we can become uh, manipulative or anxiety-ridden because we're, we don't really trust that people are going to be alongside of us. And because of that, we often project that onto God. And we say, well, I don't know, God, if you're really going to be with me. I mean, I've done some pretty terrible things. Or I find myself in some very lonely places. I'm not really sure if you, you being with me has some sort of limit or expiration date on it. But the journey of faith is us day by day learning how to trust God a little bit more and a little bit more in His faithfulness, that He's with us and that He moves alongside of us through our personal stories, but He's also for us. He advocates for us on the regular. When we talked about that image of the Trinitarian God, I said, you know, that, that God the Son and God the Spirit, even in Scripture, are both advocating for us. They're pleading our case. They're praying for us when we don't know what to pray for ourselves. And so we have this beautiful vision in the Trinitarian God of a, of a community, that God is this loving community that welcomes us in and is advocating for us even when we don't feel it. And I think that advocacy then is what we call God's sovereignty, that he's in the business of turning curses into blessings. So maybe we do believe that God's with us. We say, God, I don't, I don't know what you're going to do with this moment in my life or this thing. It seems this is too much for you to do anything with it. But when we trust in God's faithfulness, we see how he's able to take even the most dire situations in our lives, these curses that are spoken over us or enacted upon us, and he turns them to become blessings because it actually becomes the fertile soil in which we become more authentically human. We become uh, deeper, you know, in relationship with God. We learn to abide in Him. And I think, you know, as we've been saying over and over again in this series, that the cross is kind of central to our understanding of what God is really like. That's the most beautiful and dramatic picture, Jesus on the cross, to say this is the best demonstration of God's heart for humanity. And that everything we believe as Christians points us to the cross, and everything that we believe as Christians kind of radiates from that. And so when we're talking about faith then, I think we find this powerful way to read the God that we see on the cross. That the cross is a symbol that God has entered into a committed relationship with us. The cross becomes this symbol, this demonstration of God saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will always be with you until the end of the age. There is nothing that can separate you from me. I'm coming after you, and my goal is to raise you up, to lift you back up into life. We have a word for committed relationship. We find it in Scripture, and sometimes we use it in our culture. We talk about covenant. And one of my favorite ways to understand God's faithfulness to us is to understand the difference between covenant and contract as the foundation of our trust in any kind of relationship that we have. Uh, first of all, when we talk about covenant, um, the most covenantal relationship that we have in humankind is marriage. This is a symbol that God has given us that we're to exercise to understand what covenant really means. And covenant starts with this promise that I'm not going anywhere. That's the beginning of covenant. I was sitting with someone in our community about eight months ago who had gotten married rather recently, and they're kind of working through the weeds of the reality of being married. Like, you know, when you, obviously, not all of us know this, 
myself included. But when you wake up in the morning and you turn, it's like, oh, you're still here. And you don't know what to do with that. And maybe that person looks weird or you see a mole that you didn't notice before. And it's like, you're still here, but I don't even know who you are. So this person's kind of working through the reality of what that marriage thing looks like. And out of my immense experience, obviously, I was able to give him so much wisdom. But I said, you know, this is how I understand covenant to the best of my ability right now in my life, is that you're sitting across the table from your beloved. And your beloved says to you, you know how you have this constant anxiety that you're afraid that you're going to be abandoned or rejected? Yeah, and you know how that fear just kind of guides all of your behavior? That the way that you talk to me or the way that you text me or call me or all these little side you know, statements that you just kind of make that just kind of eke out on the sides, like all of that stuff because your core fear is that I'm going to leave you. What if none of that was on the table? What if your deepest fear was no longer valid because I'm promising to be with you always? Who do you want to be now? How do you want to live your life now? When I was talking to my friend about this, I was saying, this is my favorite image of God that I can hold on to right now, is that God is our beloved on the other side of the table who says, all of your fears of being abandoned or rejected or forsaken, they're all off the table. It's not an option. I'm not going anywhere. And so who do you want to be? Do you, you want to continue to live out of this fear that I'm going to run away or that I'm going to reject you? Or do you want to learn how to trust that more day by day and in doing so realize that you have been created to be a whole and complete human being? You see, there's this proactive spirit to the idea of covenant that when it starts with withness, there's infinite possibility of what can grow on the other side of that. But I think so, for so many of us, the idea of covenant is alien because many of our human relationships are actually contractual, which I think stands in stark contrast to the marital image of covenant. If marriage starts with this idea of I'm not going anywhere, contract begins with the fact that you inherently do not trust the other person. And so you need it in writing. And unfortunately, a lot of marriages are actually founded upon a contractual understanding of love rather than a covenantal. And it becomes almost like a hostage negotiation, right? It's like you've got your list of demands and you write them down on a three by five and you kind of slide them across the table and you take theirs and you're like, okay, here's my demands. I need it by midnight on Friday, or we're going to have a showdown, you know? And there's this inherent distrust in how we're relating. And it's this, maybe, maybe it's an exchange of goods and services, but before long, that image of marriage begins to look like the same contract that you have with your landlord. I had a landlord who was very nice and completely oblivious. He actually lived in Texas uh, the whole time that I was renting here, and there was this leak in the roof in my dining room, and I told him pretty on the regular, because you know how in Florida it rains, like always? And I was like, oh, you know, there's this, this leak in the roof in the dining room. He's like, oh, yeah, man, I really need to take care of that. I was like, yeah, you, you, you do, because, you know, we signed this bit of paper, and it's there for, you know, legal purposes. And it, it, for the two and a half years, it was this, like, I really think we you need to probably, like, change the roof or do something about this. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. You know, you know, we've been thinking about selling that house. It's our last property in Florida. And I was like, cool. 
I need the roof fixed, like now. I'm not going to buy this house from you when it's got a hole in the roof. Uh, and eventually I, I, I moved out, and then I got charged because he had to have someone come in and clean black mold that was hanging out in over the shower that I couldn't possibly see, and he charged me $200 for that. And I was like, cool, great relationship, guy. Um, but that's a, you know, that's a contractual relationship. We, I'm going to pay the rent on the first of the month, and you're going to do all of these goods and services. And there's nothing personal in a contractual understanding. And the real thing about a contractual relationship is that we can always opt out when the other side is unfaithful. And a lot of times when we're in contractual relationships, in marriage, friendship, family, with God especially, we're always waiting to be disappointed. In fact, sometimes we actually set it up. We kind, of, we kind of steel ourselves against the inevitability that this person is going to disappoint us or abandon us, and we're just waiting for it. And then as soon as it happens, we go, oh, there it is, I knew it, and we tear up the contract that we've written in our hearts with this person, and we throw it out, and we go seeking love in other places. And a lot of times, this is the attitude that we have in our relationship with God. But we have to understand, again, that if God's promise is always to be with us, God does not want a contract with us. Our faith is not a contractual obligation that we're going to pay our rent on the first of every month and we're going to go to church on Sundays and we're going to read our Bible every day of every week or whatever it might be, but it's actually this covenantal relationship to say, hey, you don't have all the facts yet and that's okay. If you just start with this idea that I'm not going anywhere, Let's see what we can build on the other side of that. And so that's uh, the importance of us starting with our understanding of the faithfulness that God models to us, and then we can begin to talk about our response. How are we called to, to offer back to God some semblance of trust in a covenantal relationship, which brings me back to my definition. Faith is choosing to participate in God's story, especially when we don't have all the facts. It's choosing to show up. It's choosing to, to, to step in, to say, yes, I love that line in that modern worship song. It says, when I don't understand, I'm going to choose you. And unfortunately, for many of us, that's been sold short. It's when I understand, when I have it in writing, when I know the terms of engagement, then I will choose you. When you prove yourself to me, then I'll enter into relationship with you. But we don't see that anywhere in the Scripture. We don't see that kind of faith modeled. In fact, a lot of times we grew up with this idea that faith is something that you kind of have to wrap your head around by the time you're about 12, and then you have to preserve that and keep it tidy and clean. And then you get out into the big world, and you engage with all these different people, and there's all these different questions, and you don't know what to do. And your faith is being compromised in that. But when we actually go back to Scripture and we read the stories of those who have lived by faith before us, we see a dramatically different vision of this. And so Hebrews 11 is kind of seen as like the faith chapter. You know, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is like the love chapter. You know, love is patient, love is kind. You've probably been to a wedding and heard that one. Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. And it starts with this. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So the writer of Hebrews is already kind of weaving in those two parts. There's a confidence in what we hope for, not because we understand it, but because it's been promised by God, and there's an assurance of what we do not see. So faith even goes above and beyond our intellectual ability to understand or comprehend something. 
And she goes on, this is what the ancients were commended for. And if you know this chapter, it's kind of a, it tells the whole story of Scripture through the lens of faith and all of these different people who chose to show up. They chose to participate by faith. And it's fascinating when you're reading this list of these stories that you know, many of you would be familiar with from the Old Testament. It doesn't say anywhere in that that, you know, and then Moses took the test and he passed and he got the certificate of, of you know, that he's a good little Jewish boy and then he was in. You know, it's like Abraham, he went down to the DMV and he did the eye test and he got the license and he's in, he's good, he's, he's, he's a man of faith. The fascinating thing about Abraham is that dude didn't know what was going on like most of the time, right? Like he was promised that he's going to have this son and then he waits 40 years before God even says anything to him again. And then he has this son, you know, when it just seems like it's completely impossible for that to be part of it. So even Abraham as the father of the faith, it's not because he understood or comprehended things. It's because he continued to show up. It's because he continued to trust God. You see, when we begin to talk about trusting God, it's like there's this whole different arena of conversation that we're having. That when we pitch our tent in his presence, our tent pegs go into an entirely different soil than being able to comprehend or understand something. And we see this time and again in what we call the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament that are spoken of in Hebrews chapter 11. For the sake of the promise that God was always going to be with them and would never forsake them, these kind of two things. Number one, they did things that were contrary to conventional wisdom. They did things that the people in the culture around them said were completely insane. Because yes, sometimes when we live by faith, God calls us to do insane things and to live timelines and to live lives that seem very contrary to conventional wisdom. And the second thing was that they chose to do things that they didn't entirely understand. That a lot of times I think it's by trusting God and being obedient to be the kind of people he's calling us to be, that we have the revelation on the other side. And so how many of you, it's through stepping out in faith to do something, especially when you didn't understand it or you didn't have the facts, that you actually had this revelation of what God's really like? A lot of times it's serving someone who's inconvenient to you or choosing into loving somebody instead of tending to your own stuff. These are those little moments where we're choosing to be obedient, even above and beyond what we understand, and it's on the other side of obedience that we have this new revelation of God's heart for human beings. And so our response as we participate in faith, that's what we call trust. And I think this is so important. This is the, maybe the most practical thing that I'll say all evening, so you should definitely write this down. To trust God daily, we walk the parallel tracks of worship and repentance. So practically, what does it look like to, for us to be people of faith? As I've studied scripture and as I've kind of examined my own life and in my interactions with you guys as we're kind of talking through this thing called faith, these are the two common themes that I keep coming back to and I almost envision them as these parallel tracks that are laid down in front of us that are leading us to that hope of which we are assured that it talks about in scripture. And so number one, what is worship? I think worship is basically us practicing the presence of God, right? that the Christian life becomes us learning how to trust God day by day as we're allowing him into all of the, the nooks and crannies of our lives. And so worship is us practicing the presence of acknowledging that God is with us. And we do that through musical worship, certainly. 
We do that through prayer. We do that through generosity. We do it through service. All of these different kind of little elements of the Christian ecosystem are us stepping into worship, acknowledging actively that God is with us, and then allowing him to reveal how he's with us in these little moments in our lives. And the second track is repentance. That repentance, I love that in the Old Testament when the word repentance is used, it essentially means this. It means come home. Just come home. You've, you've wandered off the path. You're, you're, you're stuck in the woods. You're lost. You're disoriented. Just why, why don't you just you come home? That's what repentance means in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament in Greek, it's a slightly different word. Um, and literally, it means change your brain. Metanoia, change your brain. Repentance means change your brain. And what it's really saying is change the way you, you've been thinking about things. So you've been thinking for a certain, in a certain way, largely because you're ignorant of God's presence to you. And so let's just change the way that you think about things. And I love when you allow those two things to sit next to each other, the idea of coming home and the idea of changing how you think as repentance. We begin to see that's the opportunity for us to step back into a lifestyle of worship. I think we see this in the life of David. David, you know, we say, oh my goodness, he would be this pillar of faith, and he led this life of worship. He was constantly worshiping before the Lord and inviting Israel into worship. But if we're honest, there was a lot of times in David's story when he got it very, very wrong, where he forgot about God's presence, where he forgot about God's heart, and he wandered off into the woods. He wandered off into the deep grass, and he has this moment of revelation like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? What am I doing here? I've, I've missed it. I've wandered away. But see, David understood something that I think many of us struggle with when we find ourselves off the path. We feel like God wants to condemn us for that. But David understood that there was always the opportunity to come home to God, to change his thinking, to come back. And so David walked this lifestyle of worship and repentance, and through that, he was continually growing as a human being in his relationship with God. And I think that's so important for us to receive when we talk about faith, that yes, we're called to a lifestyle of worship, practicing the presence of God, but God is always standing at the doorway, inviting us to come home. He's always saying, hey, okay, you messed up. Okay, you messed up really bad. You know, you murdered somebody and then you took their wife. Let's just pick something random from Scripture. You, you, you done bad. Come home. Come back to me. Do you, do you trust me to receive you back, to restore you? The biggest thing that keeps us from God is our fear of turning back to him because we don't trust that he's with us and that he's for us. I think when we begin to walk the, the journey of faith with these parallel tracks of worship and repentance, we begin to see that far from being this passive idea that we're, just, we're saved and then we're just kind of twiddling our thumbs waiting for the apocalypse to happen, our faith is actually vibrant and active and it invites response from us. And so next week, Cole's going to be speaking specifically about worship. And then in a few more weeks, Nicole's going to be speaking on confession and repentance. And we'll be able to see in more detail how those, those two parallel tracks work in the life of faith. 
And I think this is what's so powerful, is we choose to participate in faith, what we believe grows. And again, when we're presented with this very static vision of faith, like you've got to get all the answers right, and you've got to have, you know, all the Bible verses memorized by the time that you're 12, and then you've got to kind of freeze yourself in that moment of history and don't let anything challenge you, everything starts to fall apart when you get older and you find yourself in the uncharted territory and you don't really know what's going on. But I think it's, it's completely uh, a radical thing for us to understand that as we continue to show up and participate in faith when we don't understand, what we believe changes and grows. What we believe kind of sits on top of our faith. And that comes through experience. There's this really powerful story in Mark chapter 9 where there's this little boy and he's tormented by a demon and the, be- the demon causes him to kind of writhe around on the ground and bang himself into stuff. And his father's just desperate to see him delivered. And so he comes over to Jesus and, and the father, maybe even without thinking, is like, Jesus, if you can, come and deliver my son from this demon. And Jesus says, if I can, well, anyone who believes that I can will see the evidence. And there's this really powerful line in Mark 9, 24. It says, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And I love that line. I do believe, but help me to overcome my unbelief. Because I think that becomes for us this powerful prayer that sits on top of our journey of faith. That far from being a liability, unbelief or doubt or question can actually become the fertile soil in which we experience how exactly God is going to be with us and for us. I think the only time that unbelief, that doubt, that fear is really power, like has power over us is when we don't speak it out. When we're afraid that if we admit that we don't have all the answers, that we don't exactly know what's going on, that somehow that exempts us from God's presence. But what if actually those questions, those confessions become the very place where God meets us? Some of my favorite questions to encounter with people that I'm giving counsel to is when there's really a difficult something is happening in their lives, whether personally or in the news or whatever it is, and and they're starting to ask all of these questions about the character of God or who they thought that they were or how the world works or whatever it might be. And I always hear this tinge of guilt. It's like, I, I I can't articulate my questions. I'm afraid that if I ask this question, I'm gonna be on the outside. I'm not going to be allowed into the household. But those are some of my favorite questions because it matters. It means there's something within you that says, I'm not going to take things at face value. I care. I care about my life. I care about what God's like. I want to go deeper. I'm not content with the basic questions that I've been given my whole life. And often what happens to us in those moments of tragedy or unbelief or struggle is that we're asking those questions, God, are you still with me? Are you still for me? And if we have guides alongside of us, if we have loving community alongside of us that actually encourage us to ask those questions as part of our journey of faith, not exempt from faith, we find ourselves coming to these new understandings of what God is like. Again, from the blessed Uh, Eugene Peterson, he says, all the persons of faith I know are sinners, doubters, uneven performers. 
we are secure, not because we're sure of ourselves, but because we trust that God is sure of us. How many of you tonight, that actually sounds like good news? That you've messed up, yeah. You've wandered into the deep woods. But it's not contingent. Your faith is not contingent upon you being so sure of yourself and you have all of the answers and you're very capable, thank you very much. Your faith is actually contingent upon how sure God is of you. When we treat faith like it's this heavenly commodity, like we're in some sort of video game in life and we're walking through life and we jump and we hit this brick with our head and then a mushroom comes out, we're like, yay, more faith, and we take it upon ourselves. We've completely missed the point. Faith isn't something that we well up inside of ourselves and we perform really adequately to earn more of it. It's a free gift from God. The invitation then for us is just to receive Can you trust God's character in the moments when you have questions and doubts, in the moments where you don't see the immediate evidence of his presence to you? Can you wait it out as the heroes of the faith did? Can you hold on? Can you continue to show up, to keep participating in those dark moments in your life, trusting that God is going to take you by the hand and to lead you through those moments? And actually, there'll come a point in your journey of faith where you'll look back and it was the darkest moments in your life that become the most glorious representation of God being with you and for you. That's what faith is really about. And I think this is what's so beautiful. When you have a lot of, whether you have a lot of faith or a little, it's enough. When Jesus says to the crowds, O ye of little faith, He's not condemning them. It's not a condemnation, it's an invitation. Whether you are sitting here right now and, and you just, you're welling with faith and belief and trust in God or you don't even know what brought you into this room, you have a thread of it, you have an ounce of it, but it was enough to get you through the front door, it's enough for Jesus. Can you bring that to him? Lay it down in front of him to see what he's going to do with it. Can you pray that prayer? I, I believe in some capacity, I believe, but help me. Help me. See, let me see what you can do with this. So I want to invite you to stand, and I'm going to read over us the summary of this passage in Hebrews that's talking about what faith really looks like. And there's this beautiful piece that speaks of what we are to do, how we are actually to steward our faith. But I want you to receive this as a prayer over you tonight and and maybe to allow it to become the fertile soil in which you actually do some business with Jesus right now in maybe confessing some of your doubts, your struggles, your insecurities. But instead of feeling like those are the things that keep you from him, actually believing maybe these are the the very places that he's going to reveal himself to you. So the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those that have come before us, those that surround us even now, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.